Living in Philadelphia, many exist in an incredibly unique intersection of history being preserved in archives and museums and history being written every single day. As technology advances in University City at Drexel University, we find archaeological digs in Center City when breaking new ground for the next big building. With this history, we can look at the growth of so many communities in Philadelphia, and by extension, at Drexel, from the black community growing and settling in West Philadelphia, to the vibrant punk culture on South Street. This includes Jewish people and the growth of the Jewish American identity in Philadelphia, and including Jewish life at Drexel. Although short, Drexel's history of Jewish life is rich, varied, and quite the ride. My name is Ezra Inquirvaya, and today we're going to detail Jewish life at Drexel from before Drexel created the Judaic Studies program, while the program was being created, and its state now. We will be hearing from a few different voices in addition to my own. These are obtained from interviews conducted by myself with Drexel faculty members Dr. Rachmiel Peltz, the first director of the Judaic Studies program and professor of sociolinguistics, and Rabbi Isabel de Koenig, the executive director and campus rabbi for Hillel. This podcast is brought to you by Dragons Remember and the Alumni Association. Let's get into it. Starting with the state of Jewish life before the Judaic Studies program was created in 1997, we see that there really isn't that much. Drexel was not known for being a pro-Jewish or Jewish-friendly university. Drexel was mostly known as a commuter school and not much else by those who are not Jewish and an anti-Semitic school by those who are Jewish. Although not notably good or bad, there are some very distinct limitations for Jewish students and even the board of trustees at Drexel. Rabbi Isabel de Koning details the experience of Jewish students well. In an interview, she said, So first of all, you know, in the memory of alumni who are still alive and well and working today, you know, people who graduated in the 60s and early 70s, um, you know, they all will tell you about a time when co-op employers just wouldn't hire. There were co-op employers who wouldn't hire Jews, either officially or unofficially, um, and there were a lot of them, um, particularly in some of the engineering fields, but really, you know, in, across the board, you'll, you'll hear about accounting firms who had quotas, you know, we can only have one Jewish partner um, or X number of, you know, whatever, Jews at this level. Um, and so there were a lot of, you know, like very public and uh, limitations um, that uh, that Jewish students had to overcome in their experiences at Drexel. So, you know, all of that, thankfully, is gone, um, at least, you know, and isn't really socially acceptable broadly, um, you know, around, quote, around anyone. It was interesting hearing this, the idea of quotas being present for employees or students during this time not too long ago feels weird. Because of all the progress society has made and is still making, it is a privilege to be able to distance this idea that these horrible things that have happened within a couple generations of us and say that it's crazy and only happened in the 60s, but in reality, they're still here for some and a recent memory for more. For those who may not know, and to explore this idea a little deeper, racial quotas are when a company, university, organization, etc. limits the number of certain people allowed in the institution. It initially had been used to make sure everyone is represented in a room. However, during the 20th century, many have used this to limit the amount of access a certain group has to education, work, or other resources. In the case of many co-op employers, during the mid to late 20th century, this was applied to Jewish people and people of color. The idea of quotas for minoritized groups has been present for a long time. It feels so painful 
to imagine that a young college student, no different than you or me, getting ready to apply to the co-op of their dreams, only to be denied because they are Jewish, or because they are Black, because they are a woman, or queer, or Asian, or any minoritized group that may find themselves at home at Drexel. Turning our gaze from outside of Drexel to inside, we can see a similar issue with the Board of Trustees. In an interview with Rachmiel Peltz, he discusses the experiences of those who are Jewish and trying to be part of the Board of Trustees at Drexel. He says, In its own way, it was known as an anti-Semitic school, if you've heard that. Yes. Both in terms of perhaps because of engineering or whatever, people don't even know this. Even when I came here, and I'm only teaching at Drexel 23 years, people thought that most of the students at Drexel were Irish Catholic students from Northeast Philadelphia commuting. It was the case once at once. Um, even Mr. Stein and some other people who of Jewish background, there were two levels, two tiers of the Board of Trustees. You couldn't get to Drexel's upper tier if you were Jewish. So even Drexel has this experience. Uh, but in general, the Jews managed to achieve so much and were integrated further than any other society. So that's how it's different. I found this both fascinating, but also upsetting to hear. I and many other Jews have become used to hearing about anti-Semitic acts and systems that have been present and in some cases are still present. But for some, it feels very off to hear this come from Drexel, which prides itself in its progressive and accepting nature. I think of the Perlman Center, the Student Center for Diversity and Inclusion, and the Center for Black Culture, and all the work they have done, are doing, and will do for students. But then I think of this and few other things that can be found digging through Drexel's history long enough. This shows that Drexel has grown and changed. In many ways, the university now is a whole lot different from the university that Rabbi Isabel de Koenig, Rachmiel Peltz, and many others experienced. But there is still room for change. We will see this change firsthand for Drexel's Jewish community, through the creation of its Judaic Studies program in 1997, and the growth of Drexel Hillel and the Perlman Center in the early and late 2000s. The introduction of the Judaic Studies program at Drexel is an interesting story. So, in 1997, President Papadakis went on a trip with other university presidents, including Penn State President Graham B. Spanier, to Israel and Ireland with Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge. This trip happened because of Pennsylvania's trade agreements that they made with other countries and their governments. The governor wanted to interact personally with these governments with representatives from the state, from technology and education, to help progress Pennsylvania as a technological hub. So, President Constantine Papadakis goes to Israel, and I think Rachmiel Peltz puts it best when describing Papadakis' thoughts in Israel. He said, He goes to Israel, and what he sees is Drexel. He goes to Israel, but sees Drexel. Every, all of their startups, and I mean, you, you just name it, all these international conglomerates and all were in Israel at that point. And he saw that this was an opportunity and he wanted to start a co-op program in Israel. And for some reason, which is hard to figure out, he felt that he couldn't start a co-op program in Israel without a Jewish studies program. This got the ball rolling for President Papadakis. With Israel's burgeoning tech industry, it made sense to him to have the STEM students be able to co-op there. Drexel's always 
had the outlook of being on the cutting edge of technology and scientific practices, and this is no exception. However, before he could start co-op in Israel, a Judaic studies program needed to be started to prepare students to be able to live in Israel for a large portion of time. For most, generally around six months. That's a long time. In order to make a program, he needed a program director. This is where Rachmiel Peltz comes in. Rachmiel Peltz is a Jewish Bronx native with a bachelor's in microbiology and a PhD in Yiddish. He has been very involved in activism for Jews in America and in the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s. After a lot of studying in both Philadelphia and New York City, he was approached to head the faculty initiative to create a Judaic studies program for Drexel and their Israel co-op, and the program started rolling. They needed a room to have classes, hold documents, and just exist in. So what is now a seminar room on the fourth floor of the Klein Law Library was the home of the Judaic Studies program. It held primary sources for students to study, held Dr. Peltz's office, and one seminar room for classes. Most of the early work was to create classes to help get co-op students ready to go to Israel for their co-op. For them to be able to understand Hebrew, the Israeli culture, and be able to find things like an apartment to stay in or their job. Classes to fill up the Judaic Studies program more would come later. Many of these courses would allow students to go out into the community to learn at Jewish archives, museums, and community centers, and even had community members come to classes at Drexel. Uh, Rachmiel Peltz details this very well. He says, So, you know, it's, um, we did a lot of work with a lot of institutions. We were out there in the streets to a certain extent, we would take Drexel students in terms of the Jewish community. And most of my students at the beginning were not Jewish, but we would take them to Jewish day schools, synagogues, um, museums, and they would meet with the clientele there for whatever reason. We would have study programs. We did what we called intergenerational ethnic education programs. So I would have like a, a, a whole semester project on growing up in Israel. And there were enough Israelis of different ages in the city to talk about their experience growing up of all different kinds of backgrounds. There would be a naval attache from the Israel. There would be a Hasidic rabbi from downtown, grew up in Tel Aviv. There would be a woman who fought in the War of Independence in 1948. There'd be an 18-year-old from Lower Marion High School who immigrated when he was 14 years old to say what it was like to come here and how he befriended all the non-Jewish immigrants because he didn't have anything in common with the Jewish kids here. And uh, so they would learn that kind of thing, or we did things with senior programs. They would do different kinds of projects on Jewish holidays, what happened years ago. And the Drexel students, would they, they loved these kinds of getting out into the world and seeing how the institutions run. So we, we, we did those ki kinds of things at those institutions. Besides, personally, my own connection to different institutions where I did different kinds of research at different times. So basically, I, it was always student-oriented projects and course-oriented projects. We had a lot of guest lecturers and authors coming in, but it was always at the time of the class. It wasn't like, I'll do it at eight o'clock at night. I wanted to make sure that our students would benefit from it, and then I would invite the community into the class at that hour. 
students. And we'd have and and the room would fill up. Like if I had 15 Drexel students, all of a sudden they would see or 40 older students would come in to join them. And a lot of times the Drexel students would go out and interview these students and do different projects, these older community people and do projects with them. So now with the program started and rolling, co-ops can start, right? You would think that. And you would not be completely correct. During this time, around 2000 to 2005 to be specific, there was a large amount of civil unrest in Israel due to Palestine trying to protest the Israel-Palestine peace process and Palestine specifically fighting to be seen as an independent state. This time was called the Second Intifada. The Israeli military deployed rubber bullets and tear gas onto protesters, and many civilians were unfortunately killed or harmed in the crossfire. Due to the consistent violence and danger in Israel during this time, many students and their families were scared to go or send their children to Israel for co-op. Here's one story that Rachmiel Peltz brings up about a student and their experience with thinking about going to co-op in Israel. They did fantastic. They got great job offers and so forth. But then nobody would come. They, parents wouldn't send their students. It wasn't safe enough. So there was a time when there was a young man intending to go to Israel whose first name was Mohammed Drexel undergrad. And his mother from India was calling the mother of a child of Jewish heritage whose mother was sitting in Bucks County to try to see if it was safe for her son Mohammed to go to Israel during this up upright you know so it was it was weird kind of times and we never really were able to restart that but it was one of the more successful um co-op programs we see even in the short anecdote the amount of care many drexel students and families have for each other in trying times we see it then and we see it now however even with this care some things could not recover from the second intifada both in and out of israel for drexel it was the co-op, the co-op that started it all, that got the Judaic Studies program, like, going. Although it was short-lived, it was the push to get the ball rolling for many students in their co-ops, no matter where they were or where they went, and for the Jewish community at Drexel. In our following section, we will see how Jewish life has changed at Drexel following the forming of the Judaic Studies program and the short-lived co-op abroad in Israel. A lot has changed in the 25 years since the creation of the Judaic Studies program at Drexel. We now have the Perlman Center for Jewish Life, a robust Jewish Hillel and Chabad program with weekly Shabbat dinners and holiday celebrations, a Jewish fraternity, and Birthright Israel, allowing students to travel to Israel, all with a thriving Jewish student and faculty body. However, it was not easy to get where we are now much like it wasn't easy to get the Judaic Studies program afloat. In an interview with Rabbi Isabel de Koenig, when asked, she details the uphill climb and continuous moving of the Hillel program. Rabbi Isabel details her interesting journey to being a part of Drexel 11 years ago. She states, uh, a, An accident. <laughs> a happy accident. I was... Um, finishing up rabbinical school here in Philadelphia at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Um, and I was about to get married. Um, and my uh, partner, who would become my wife at the time, was, a, was finishing her last year in rabbinical school. And we know we needed to stay in Philadelphia. Um, 
And I had been, my, in my last two years in rabbinical school, I had been working as a rabbinic intern for Hillel uh, at Bryn Mawr and Haverford Colleges. Um, and at the time, all of the Hillels in Philadelphia were connected, um, sort of at the back end. And so I went to the then CEO of Hillel of Greater Philadelphia, Rabbi Howard Alpert, and I said, we really need a job uh, for the year because um, we have to stay in Philadelphia for at least a year. And, you know, I've really enjoyed working here at Hillel. Can you can you do anything for me? Um, and I was slated to do a very strange combination of he was very generous and gracious. And I was slated to do a combination of things to kind of make it work for the year. And then the person um, there used to be just one person who worked for a hill at Drexel um, who wasn't a rabbi. Um, she was wonderful, but she um, had a family emergency uh, in the summer of 2010, um, just a couple of weeks, maybe six weeks, it was two weeks before my wedding, six weeks before students were coming to campus. Um, and she had to resign her position to, to, to take care of this family emergency. And so I kind of got called in from the bench um, last minute. Uh, I thought I'd be here for a year um, and 11 years later, uh, turns out that um, I guess I was a dragon at heart. Rabbi Isabel coming fresh out of rabbinical school to a young Drexel Hillel meant that she inherited a lot of the quirks and issues of it. Drexel Hillel before her joining had grown and shrunk and moved a lot. The way she described the state of the Drexel Hillel program is best told by her. She said, with some other supporters to name a space for Hillel, which is actually no longer there, it was in the priest building. Um, but, you know, kind of throughout Hillel's history, up through when I started, um, and including when I started, there was always sort of one professional kind of holding it together. Um, and a bunch of great student leaders um, uh, who, you know, kind of were doing the best they could for the, for the community with relatively little resources, um, very few resources, um, and a lot of passion. Um, uh, you know, it, in the Jewish community, we would say it was very Hamish, like it was very relational and sweet, um, but it wasn't always easy to access because it was run by a tiny group of people and they could, you know, they all had academic lives and college careers to run. So, you know, when I came in, it, it felt like a very sweet, warm, tight-knit community that was kind of making it work with, you know, chewing gum and, uh, you know, like scotch tape um, to sort of, you know, make magic out of very little. And magic they made. DeKonig describes the amount of moving students had to do with large carts of food for Shabbat that before Hillel got a donor to sponsor Shabbat dinners weekly came from the pockets of students who ran Hillel using the mythical cart that they used. I believe, in order to let you know about what the cart is, I believe Rabbi Isabel tells it best. She tells us. You know, at the beginning, I had a handful, you know, maybe a dozen student leaders um, who were building everything and kind of doing everything on their own from running worship services to, you know, coordinating Shabbat meals. We used to have this cart. We actually still have the cart. It is like a, a mythic. I don't think we'll ever be able to get rid of it someday. Maybe somebody will uh, bronze it or something. But um, we had this cart uh, that students would have to push across campus from wherever our office was. Our office moved uh, like a bunch of times in those in those first six years. We were in the crease building. 
Then we were in what was formerly the Newman Center, which was eventually taken down and they built that hotel, the study. Um, and then we were in the, the Paul Pack Academic Building across from Rush. Um, and, and then eventually here, but in all of those years, you know, in my first five years, six, five, five years, six years here, my first six years here, we had this cart and students would have to like push catering trays full of food across campus to McAllister without it all spilling on the ground or like, you know, all of our prayer books or all of, you know, just all of these supplies. And that's sort of what Jewish life felt like, like you were constantly pushing um, and constantly um, for the hour of connectedness and community and learning that we were going to have, it was like three hours of pushing a cart. Um, that's what it felt like. Today, um, we're able to do so much more because there's so much less pushing the cart. Um, so the, per the Perlman Center sort of allowed us to put down the cart in that way. Um, and now, you know, instead of a dozen student leaders, we have between 40 and 60 student leaders a year. Um, it, and all of the things that used to be the sum total of Jewish life on campus are now sort of like the baseline signature things that we do, Shabbat dinners, um, which, which we couldn't even afford to do every week as a community, or we had to have students pay for them at the very beginning when I was working here. Um, we now have a, a donor who, who supports that um, every week um, for anybody who wants to come, Jewish students, non-Jewish students, their friends, their, you know. Um, but so all of those things are now the baseline um, and we're able to do so much more. We do all of these learning seminars and fellowships to allow students to learn about different angles of Judaism, uh, to explore their own sort of sense of self in the world. I agree with Rabbi Isabel and that this cart should be bronzed and put on display somewhere. However, after years of hard work and pushing, they raised funds, they grew, and the Perlman Center was born in the way we know it today. Drexel Hillel now serves over 600 students a year with Shabbat dinners and lunches and works very heavily in the community. Even with all of this growth and the roots that have been planted by the Jewish community at Drexel, there are still rough waters for many Jewish students, faculty, and alumni, both inside and outside of Drexel. Many Jews, including myself, notice every year like clockwork. There is a string of anti-Semitic hate crimes and hate speech that go on at the university. These crimes are usually just vandalism, centered in dorms. However, with the rising tensions and news coverage with Israel and Palestine in the forefront of media and our minds, many anti-Semites and alt-right white supremacists find that this gives them a new reason, or personally, to be more frank, an excuse to commit these hate crimes and even worse ones. For the knowledge of everyone listening, or who may ever listen, you can critique the actions of a government without committing a hate crime or using hate speech. Although there is this hate on and off Drexel campuses, the Jewish community at Drexel and in Philadelphia will stand tall and unwavering. Our roots are here, and we are not going to be run out by mobs anymore, and there is joy and pride in that. To end us out, I would like to play a quote from Rabbi Isabel de Koenig on what brings her the most joy in her Jewish identity, singing and the Shabbos table. The two things that come to mind like most clearly, and maybe because of COVID in part, but singing in community um, is like, just fills me deeply spiritually, nourishes me relationally. Um, I, an experience I am like profoundly grateful to have on a relatively regular basis in my life. 
um, an experience I seek out. Um, I get agitated when it's outside of my life for too long. Um, but, you know, so I think the Jewish liturgical music tradition, chanting tradition brings me an incredible amount of joy. I love being with old melodies. I love being with new melodies. I love, I love knowing what the words mean and, you know, changing the words and writing new words. Like I love all of that feels deeply joyous for me. The, the second is the Shabbos table. Um, being at Shabbat dinner, you know, with just my family, um, you know, certainly over this period of COVID has been one of the great, you know, as a rabbi, I'm often off doing communal Jewish things on Shabbat. Um, but for a year, you know, my Shabbos table has been just my family. And that has been, that has been a gift. Um, but really my Shabbos table, whether it's just my family, just, you know, my extended family, whether it's my students, um, colleagues, the Shabbos table, and it's, you know, it's like Thanksgiving every Friday. It is um, also sometimes filled with song, um, usually filled with some laughter, a deep sense of relaxation, um, that sense of like primal rest um, is something that's really important to me about Judaism and Jewish tradition. Thank you for listening to this Dragons Remember podcast, your local stop for Drexel history and interviews brought to you by the Drexel History Department and the Alumni Association. Stay well read, always cite your sources, and find a small piece of joy in your life, whether singing like Rabbi Isabel, or in the pride of your Jewish identity like myself, or other identities like many others. Most importantly, have a great day. If you would like to hear more from our interviewees that you heard in today's podcast, you can find their full interviews where our podcasts are hosted. Sources used in the making of this podcast include interviews with Rabbi Isabel de Koenig and Rachmiel Peltz conducted by Ezra Ingravaya for Dragons Remember, Drexel University Interfaith Council 1997 webarchive.org, Jewish Students Start a Revolution, Leading the Way, The Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry, 1964-1974, through 2017, College of Arts and Sciences. Anne-Marie Moots, mission.html, www.department.psu.edu. Wikipedia Contributors, Racial Quota, Wikipedia, Wikimedia Foundation, September 26, 2019. Wikipedia Contributors, Second Intifada, Wikipedia, January 12, 2022.